With me is Will Smith and Lars Olsen from the ECCC, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. And I'd like to start by asking them both how they see the tribunal now when compared with two, three, four, five years ago. Over the years, the tribunal has faced uh, an enormous amount of criticism. Some people say it's fair, other people say it's not. And uh, I'd like to start by asking Will Smith, how do, you, how do you see the tribunal these days? I think it's fared very well uh, in terms of uh, answering the critics as whether or not there could be a, a fair trial process, uh, whether or not it could um, be an effective mechanism to uh, trying to have a, a clearer view on uh, what in fact happened during the Khmer Rouge period. Um, it's provided a, a great opportunity for for victims, um, either victims that present themselves with the testimony and give evidence, but also for the many victims of Cambodia to uh, release the pressure, the, the feelings they've had over the years, where there's been no forum really to do it. And so now um, victim witnesses are coming before the court, um, speaking out quite strongly as to what actually happened to them. And I think for the, the psyche of the country, the nation, I think it's been very important that people have been allowed to speak out, whereas prior to um, the beginning of the court, prior to, say, 2006, particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s, I think people felt uh, under pressure or a little bit intimidated to speak out about the rights or the abuses inflicted against them for fear that um, that would sort of uh, bring problems for themselves, which it obviously had in the past. And so I think the, the court has given a real umbrella of safety for people to start to talk about rights more. Not only rights that uh, were abused and infringed during the Khmer Rouge period were completely severe, but also talking about Cambodia moving forward and bringing discussions in about you know, the freedom of speech, uh, the right to physical protection, these types of things where people may be otherwise uh, not, not inclined to talk about. So I think it's playing a very good education role as well. Just getting back to your question, when I came here in 2006, um, there were many critics that would say that the court should never begin, even from the basis of, look, 30 years has passed, really you're going to be bringing up old wounds, Cambodia's moving forward, it's not necessary, and it would create problems, create uh, unrest in the country. I think none of that has, has uh, proven to be true. I think the, the trials have moved forward, um, people have been arrested, People have been brought to trial. We're at an appeal stage at one trial, we're in the trial stage of another. We've had a trial. We had an appeal for the head of S21. We've got investigations going on. I think the court has never been in a stronger position than it has in the last couple of years. Despite the fact that people have criticised the court, saying, you know, should it exist? Should it exist in Cambodia? It is existing, and I think it's doing very well. And, and I think the record can be looked at the, in terms of the day-to-day -day process and seeing are those fair trial rights being protected? And also in the judgments and the decisions, is there evidence to, to support uh, the conclusion made by judges? And I think comparing it to other international courts, I think it's uh, fared extremely well, despite the difficulties of being a court that has been set up in a period of transition in Cambodia. And because we're in a period of transition, there's always going to be critique, complaints about whether it could be done, whether it should be done. 
Uh, the fact is it has been done and it's still going and I think the record uh, comes up uh, very well in terms of answering the critics that it, that, uh, it is in fact a worthwhile enterprise and it is being done with, uh, with a fair trial process um, in place. And of course the tribunal is looking at the atrocities that were committed here between 1975 and 1979 by the Khmer Rouge. The wars that happened here in the latter half of last century continued until 2000 and that's one of the main reasons why the tribunal was held off, why there's so many years between any form of justice and the crimes being committed themselves. That's why I'd like to ask Lars, uh, how have you answered the critics over the years? And I might just quickly add that any tribunal that has the United Nations and the Cambodian government involving the Khmer Rouge, which enjoyed Western support and UN support over the years, is obviously going to be highly controversial and attract critics from every nook and cranny in the woodwork. Well, it's kind of a paradox, actually, because on the one hand, uh, I would say that the court, uh, much like uh, Bill already was uh, talking about, has already reached much farther than uh, at least some of the critics and skeptics of this court would have predicted, because it's like when I came here in 2009, before the first trial, there were so many critical voices saying that uh, Kang Gek would be the only person facing trial in Cambodia. He would be the sole scapegoat for the Khmer Rouge. They were definitely, and they were even questioning whether that trial would come to an end. And yet, here we are, years later, as Bill has described, we have now had a number of trials already. We have the uh, investigations ongoing in cases three and four. Uh, so, in terms of the, in, the international critics, we have definitely uh, reached much farther than what I think many of them would believe. The paradox, on the other hand, is that I think among many Cambodians, and that's the challenge we are facing now, is that they didn't have necessarily the same pessimism to the tribunal. They had enormous expectations, and what we're struggling a little bit with in terms of uh, the domestic audience is uh, f tribunal fatigue. People are frustrated that this takes a very, very long time. Um, in their, well, in any in any account, it takes a long time. Uh, you know, we can always make this relative and compare with other tribunals. And in that sense, I don't think we are spending more time. But regardless of that comparison, it's a fact that it's been seven, eight years since we started the, pr the process and we still have a way to go, that's a long time. And for many people who, who are old here now, they are impatient, they want to see a conclusion uh, what, and what they uh, call justice. The only thing we can do is to try to explain them that we can be held accountable for what has been going on since we opened our doors. You know, the, the, the fact that we didn't start before uh, more than 30 years after the Khmer Rouge took power. That's something that the tribunal can't change. It's a fact. It's a historical fact. So what we can do is we can try to focus on making the process before the tribunal as expedient as possible. At the same time, uh, this is what we're trying to, to explain, especially the victims who says that, you know, go fast, you know. And we ask them, do you, do you want the fast process or do you want the process that you feel 
make uh, gives justice to you and to your to the, the your loved ones that you 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 lost. In that case, they say, yeah, we don't want you to violate any rules or or do any shortcuts. It's difficult to get the understanding that time is required uh, for this. And in terms of some of the all, some of all the other criticism, you know, it's just impossible to. To, to deal with all the critics, because a lot of the criticism, especially th that criticism coming from international organizations, is basically a criticism of the foundation of the court, which again, that issue was settled in 2003. We can't change the ECCC agreement and the legal framework we're operating in. This was a negotiated compromise between the Cambodian government and the United Nations. And you know, you can like or you cannot like the setup of the court, but it's a fact that we have to operate within. We can't just change uh, the framework that has been agreed upon. Sure, and I think many of the frustrations come from the fact that the uh, accused are getting quite old. Uh, Doik would be in his 70s, uh, Nun Chia and Q Sampan, who are currently, who have already been found guilty for crimes against humanity and are now facing charges for genocide, are also in their 80s. Uh, Yang Siri, uh, the former foreign minister, uh, passed away before justice could be rendered. Yang Tarit, his wife, a similar situation, although she was deemed unfit for trial. How much longer do you think this can go on? Will, uh, Will Smith, by, I'll just quickly add, is one of the chief prosecutors at the tribunal. H how many years do you think you might be here, Will? That's difficult to, to give an exact um, amount of years, but I think assuming if, if in fact, uh, the investigations in cases three and four, if, in fact, they go to trial, um, it's always possible that those investigations could lead to dismissals. I mean, I think the court may be in operation for another five to seven years. And in terms of the length of time, that will depend on perhaps how many judges are available, how many trial chambers, chambers may be available to hear further trials. You know, at other courts, when the workload of the court has become quite busy, uh, what they've done is they've created another chamber and they've had uh, two trials running simultaneously. So those types of decisions uh, would obviously be made by the, the UN and the Cambodian government if it eventuates that uh, any of the suspects that are currently being investigated, and we expect these investigations to conclude next year, if any of them have been requested to, uh, to be sent to trial. But perhaps if I can just pick up on a, one or two points that uh, Lars had made, and Lars is right, it's very difficult to keep sort of everyone happy. I think when we first started the court, and you know, a lot of people thought, well, look, can't we just have a very quick trial? We all know what happened. Let's have something short and quick. The problem with that is that it more than likely that would lead to an unfair trial. That would more than likely lead to the rights of the defendant, the rights of the accused, being shortcutted, being sort of uh, contracted back. And so the fact that the accused are in their, are in their 80s now, they were in their 70s 10 years ago when the, the court first started. And I think that's a decision uh, that was made by the international community through the UN and the Cambodia government, that no matter how old people are, if there are significant allegations of, of mass human rights abuses against an entire population, age should not be uh, a defence to prosecution. And if you think about it, if you look around the world, you know, particularly in relation to the Nazis, 
I mean, the Nazi trials started, you know, in the, in, in the late 40s and, and in the 50s, and then they're still going on today at various places around the world. So for some reason, and I think it's understandable, that uh, people view uh, mass human rights abuses to be a high priority in terms of uh, punishment, um, or bringing to trial to determine whether in fact they occurred. So age, in a sense, is something, there's a factor that shouldn't be one of the, the significant factors in all of this question. It's about telling the public, telling the, the population of Cambodia, the international community, that no one can avoid being held uh, to be account, to be accounted for if they, for whatever reason, um, are unable to be prosecuted at an earlier stage. And so if we have a quick trial, then we will have complaints that there was no due process. If we have a trial that goes for too long, then there's a complaint it's not expeditious, expeditious enough and it doesn't serve the people. And I think, as Lars said, when you... We, don't, we should look at everything on a case-by-case basis, but when we compare the ECC to other tribunals around the world, it is absolutely no slower than any of the other tribunals. And there are many, many examples where it's actually moving at a faster rate in terms of uh, trials. I mean, there have been trials in Rwanda that have gone on for eight years, eight one trial. So if we look at the ECC, it's not only here just to um, bring justice for the victims uh, during the Khmer Rouge period. It's also here to assist in the, the building of the rule of law in Cambodia. And if you look at from where Cambodia was in, in the late 70s in the Khmer Rouge period, where there were no rights whatsoever. In the 80s, um, it really wasn't, there was no democratic elections during that period. And then the 90s, we've got a country coming out, moving from totalitarianism and dictatorship, moving towards democracy. And I think anyone that sort of looks at the historical processes of places around the world, a strong democracy and strong independent courts, they just don't happen overnight. There's a change in psyche, a change in approach, there's a change in the technical way that you do things and how much is enough evidence to, to prove a case, how far do you extend the rights of the victim and, and the accused and, and how much how can you keep it at the same time expeditious? So when the UN met the Cambodian government and UN lawyers and investigators met Cambodian lawyers and Cambodian investigators, there was a marriage with very, very different histories. I come from Australia where we've had peace for 200 years. Our democracy and our uh, judicial system is built on the ability to refine it year by year without conflict to, to turn the table upside down as far as what processes should be put in place to protect people's rights. Cambodians have not had that luxury. If you look at Cambodian history, as you've said, it's been tainted tragically by wars from the 90s back. So we come from two very different places, uh, many of the people from the UN community and, and many from Cambodia. So how do we get an understanding in terms of the technical approach? How do we get an understanding in terms of principles so that this trial, these processes, no matter what the outcome, are seen to be fair by the international community? And I think this being perhaps the first major hybrid tribunal in a significant way is the first sort of hot housing 
of those two ideas or, or two, two groups of people coming from very different environments. And I think that has to be taken into account in the extra time that is required to make sure that these processes are fair. And I think when we look back in history, uh, maybe not now, maybe in five years or ten years' time, I think people will look back and certainly up to the point we are now and say that was a very good transformation within the ECC from a country that has little knowledge about fair trial processes on large cases, little experience because of the, the wars they've been through, how quickly Cambodians, judges and prosecutors have acclimatised themselves to um, these, these standards and approaches at the ECC. Yeah, I must say that I was always amazed 10 years ago when people had excuses not to have a tribunal. And uh, the, the arguments were, oh, they're getting old, or why would you dredge that up again, or that it was too long ago. And I'm like, would you say that to the Simon Wiesenhall Centre? Would you say that to Jewish people 40 years after the Holocaust? And I mean, imagine what their response would be. I mean, it, was, it was kind of borderline racist in some ways that the sort of the accepted judicial processes that are in practice around the world, somehow or another, we didn't need them here, which uh, it, it, was, it was quite a strong argument, particularly, I think, 2000, 2001, when, when the tri tribunal negotiations with the UN, and in particular Hans Corral, who was the legal advisor, I think, at the time, when it all fell apart. Uh, and it was quite disheartening, I must add. Lars, how are, how are you finding... How many years have you been here? I mean, this has been a big chunk of your personal life. Yeah, it's been uh, six and a half years now since I first arrived there. Frankly, I hadn't planned to stay this long. Uh, I Well, this is a combined effect of about the developments in the cases and probably also experiences on the personal level, which have uh, led me to, to stay here. But it's been definitely a very interesting part of and a major part of my life so far. And Will, you've been here nine years now. You've raised two boys. That's a long time. How do they perceive the tribunal? I mean, they, you know, Dad's off to work every day prosecuting some of the great mass murderers of the 20th century. I mean, that's a little bit of a different upbringing. Well, I think uh, when you're a kid, often you look at uh, your dad and, and you just you view, view him as just having a job. He's off to work. And, and I think because um, certainly in, when I worked in Holland uh, 11, years, 11 years prior to working at the uh, ECC, that's the only life my older son has known as me being a prosecutor. But I think uh, ultimately their view is that Dad's going to work and he's assisting in a reconciliation process to try and shine light, a clearer light on the truth and look at who is in fact responsible for these crimes. I think it's as simplistic as that and um, I think it's as substantive as that. When we... Uh, simplistic is an interesting word in this country. I've seen many a legal argument over whether what happened here constitutes a genocide. My understanding of the law, I, don't, I can't see how it could not constitute a genocide, but given the arguments, how important are the current charges against Q. Sam Han and Nguyen Chia, who were both fronting the court after being found guilty for crimes against humanity, but are now fronting the court on uh, genocide charges. And how important is this in terms of going forward and le legal precedents being set? I mean, I think, it's, I think it's very important in the sense that whatever 
crimes were committed, and particularly if they were extremely serious, they should be recognised for the, for the factual and legal acts which occurred. So as part of the prosecution, I view from reading the facts that um, uh, these genocide allegations um, can be proved at trial. I think one thing that's important to discuss when we're talking about charges versus what factually happened, I mean, most of the people in Cambodia that died during the Khmer Rouge regime were in fact Cambodians. And they were in fact killed by and large because of their different political associations, either to the former government or to a, a different class, is, is a crime against humanity, a mass killing. But when you look at genocide, genocide is a charge that can only be brought where the victims were killed because they were from a different national, ethnic um, or, or religious group or, relation, or racial group, not, not a different political group. And so that's the, the very narrow definition of genocide. And, and now in this case, we're looking at the, the Cham Muslims and the Vietnamese. And so when the killings occurred against them, even though they, were, they occurred in smaller numbers, it occurred against them because they were viewed to be of a different ethnic or religious or national group. And so therefore it falls within the term genocide. But this second case is also dealing with mass killings against Cambodians at security centres, at work sites, you know, in their own houses, because they were perceived to be against the Khmer Rouge ideology. They were seen to be part of a, an international class or a Western class or a part of the old, the, the old establishment, the Lon Nol regime, which was supported by the Americans. And, and that was, they viewed that they, ne they needed to get rid of those those groups of people. So it's only by chance that for some groups it's legally genocide and for other groups it's crimes against humanity extermination. So I think the charges are as serious as each other, whether it's against Cambodians, Cham or Vietnamese. But I think the importance of the second trial is not so much the issue of genocide, but it's the issue of who's responsible for the large-scale killings uh, whether, whether they be Vietnamese, Cham or Cambodian. And the first trial, as you know, dealt with uh, the forced evacuations of, um, from Phnom Penh and a second forced evacuation uh, late in 75, early 1976. And that's really what it dealt with and the killings of, of people in, in those processes. However, the second trial is dealing more with once the Khmer Rouge gained control in Cambodia what did they do to its people? What did they make them do? And how did it treat certain groups? And how systematically did they implement their policies of killing people that were viewed to be enemies? And so we're dealing in this case with a number of work sites where people were killed because they didn't perform well enough. Uh, they were killed because they couldn't deal with the conditions. They were killed because they were found out in that process to be from the city or found out to be from a different religious group, or found out to be associated with people from the old regime. And also, we're dealing with security centres, including S21 again, and other security centres where people were systematically brought in, tortured, and uh, forced to confess, forced to bring forward names of people that they felt were associated with ideas that were sort of the antithesis of the Khmer Rouge. And these were systematic killing centres. And as you know, the, uh, the, the figure people sort of killed here was between 1.7 and 2.3. And maybe half of that, they say, were by execution. So 
The second case is very important because it's dealing with the charge of genocide of Cham and Vietnamese, the killing of those groups, but also very important because it's charged with dealing with the killings of um, hundreds and thousands of Cambodians just because they were perceived to be to belong to a different class. So in that sense, I wouldn't like to make it just too much of a distinction between genocide and crimes against humanity because whether you were Cambodian, Vietnamese or Cham, uh, you were a human being and it made no difference to the seriousness of what occurred. Lars, as head of the media department for the ECCC, you handle all the foreign press and you've also handled a lot of Cambodians who have come through and sat through the public gallery. How has the tribunal impacted on them? How many lives do you think it has changed? Has it reached out there to the people in the countryside? One of the advantages of having trials in Cambodia, the country where crimes were committed, is that it gives an access to the proceedings that have been impossible for victims elsewhere uh, in similar proceedings. At the ECCC, we've had more than 180,000 Cambodians so far that have attended personally uh, the trial hearings. That is an unprecedented number, I think, if you compare with anywhere in the world. These are people anywhere from 16 till the late 80s. We have people coming uh, on wheelchairs and crutches to the hearings, sometimes escorted by their great-grandchildren. All of them have their own stories to uh, tell. Some of them are also not necessarily victims, but were, were part of the revolutionary movement, and they, they come because they want to learn more things. But we've seen lots of emotions. We have seen many times people crying. There's been some anger, but more, more sadness. And we've seen people that have been willing to travel basically throughout the night just to come to Phnom Penh to see a day of the hearing. We have people from all provinces of Cambodia have attended. So those that come from uh, the most remote provinces have started like at 8, 9 in the evening uh, to travel overnight to Phnom Penh just to see a day of the court. Uh, and, and, you know, if you sit in the public gallery and you watch these people coming in from the countryside, it's quite fascinating because, of course, there's a lot of technicalities that will go way over the head of most people anywhere in the world. But as soon as you see testimonies, and particularly if some of the accused are speaking, uh, you can basically hear if a needle would fall uh, in the, the public gallery, because then it's complete silence. Everyone is, is closely watching what's going on. So I have to say that I think for those, especially those who survived the Khmer Rouge regime, what we're doing does make a difference, and they are paying attention uh, more than probably the younger generation, which some of them are uh, curious, uh, but they don't know too much about the Cambodian history. And finally, I'd like to ask Will Smith, what is the favourite moment? There have been some fantastic moments at the court, memorable moments. I think David Chandler standing up before the court and just saying these people did very stupid things, which is stupid, was quite amazing. I thought Yang Tarit, when she did appear before the court and just turned around and blamed Nunchia and said he did it, was also quite memorable. Um, you, you've obviously been in the court a lot more than anybody else, probably, probably the most seasoned veteran out there by now, but what was the most memorable moment for you over the past nine years in court? Well, as you know, we, we have a, a very good prosecution team and very good prosecutors, so I'm really one of many. But certainly, I think there's a 
a couple of moments. I mean, Lars talked about the heartwarming stories of um, you know, victims testifying and um, finally getting an opportunity to, to make a statement of actually what happened to them and it's taking ownership and, and, and telling the world what happened. And I think that's a very freeing experience. So I found them very powerful. And, and as actually, as um, Lars said, when the accused testified, you could hear a pin drop. But also, at the same token, when you hear civil parties testify... Um, particularly when the lawyers are out of it a bit, we're not controlling the questioning, and they give a um, sort of an unplugged account of what happened to them and their families, you can hear pins drop too. Because then you realise what this court is really about amongst all the technology. But two fascinating things that I I certainly found, and and it it sort of makes me think of the psyche of these organisations that um, sort of allow these types of crimes to occur and the people that are behind them, I remember uh, when we were questioning Doik, and, and Doik went to a meeting in Phnom Penh, I think where there were hundreds and hundreds of other CPK cadre were being, it's an education session in Phnom Penh during the Khmer Rouge period, and I think it was probably at the Olympic Stadium. And uh, Pol Pot was there, and Doik was there. And uh, Pol Pot got very close to Doik, and uh, I said to him, how did that make you feel when you were in the presence of Pol Pot? because Doik talked about the fact that he was forced to uh, commit these crimes and forced to be the chief of S21. He did it, but he said he was forced to do it. And what I found strange and interesting is he replied, it gave me a strange feeling. And then I said, well, what type of feeling did it give you? And he said, it gave me that good, warm feeling or something like that. That struck me. And and another, just one other incident struck me as well when... um, Doik was testifying. I think it was about the second or third to last question uh, that the prosecution had with Doik. And my national colleague, he said, look, I've got a couple of further questions to ask. And he said to Doik, how did you feel about Sun Sen? Now, Sun Sen uh, was in the standing committee and was also the immediate boss of Doik at S21 for a time. And Doik said, I'm glad you asked me that. This is at the end of the trial. No one has ever really asked me that, asked me that before. And he said something to the effect of, I've got the utmost pride for Sun Sen. And those two comments by Doik really made me think about the culture that was operating in that Khmer Rouge hierarchy, where someone who's forced to kill, he said he was forced to kill, that was the debate. We argued that he wasn't forced, he actually voluntarily participated within a sort of a disciplinary regime. But nonetheless that someone could say 30 years later, I still have, and this was for Sun Sen particularly, not about Pol Pot. He said he felt good in Pol Pot's company. But with Sun Sen, he said, I still have the utmost respect for Sun Sen. And this was 30 years later. And I found that very strange that um, after all the time had passed, after all the killing had gone, that we would still get those responses from someone that was involved so heavily in the crimes. And on that note, I'd like to thank uh, Will Smith, the co-prosecutor at the ECCC, and Lars Olsen, who's the chief media spokesman. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Luke.